last week. Kind of hit me all of a sudden Saturday night and carry on all throughout Sunday and a little bit into Monday, so I keep it encouraged like that. We're going to focus on that. Occasion for that. Uh, so, are you are you are you running with Jesus or are you walking with Jesus? Are you crawling with Jesus? Are you running with him? How much how much time are you spending kind of entertainment and things that have no eternal effect and eternal impact? Uh, are, you, are you making the adjustments and staying staying to them, sticking to them, or just a one week thing? And back to normal. What's it going to be? Very important thing. Oftentimes I've seen, I was talking to a brother last night and we're talking about things and how, uh, talking about a certain scripture he didn't understand properly and you know, I tried to help him understand that. And he was talking about people who say the Christians are repent of something and then they'll go back to doing it again. And, you know, whether that original repentance was genuine, I said, well, I don't question the original repentance, whether it was, it was genuine or not. Uh, but I do question whether they're taking back and making the adjustment they make to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, to cut off the hand that's causing the sin, to pluck out the eye, cut off the foot. And, uh, so I hope you're, hope you're being genuine, you're running with Jesus. And you're getting in your prayer closet daily, and seeking His face, and, and looking for more love and more power. That's what we talking about this morning. The last time we were in Matthew, we talked about Jericho. <laughs> Can anyone give me uh, one thing they remember from that, that teaching, from, from Jericho? Matthew 20, 29 through 34. Through Jericho, okay. Okay, good. Those are the two Jericho, that's correct. How, how far apart were they? That's about right. Yeah, about a half mile to a mile, somewhere in there. And what what was the uh, the old Jericho? What was it called? What was that three letter word it's called? Especially the tell. And what is a tell? Just give it to me in your own words, so I can give you the a bump. Okay. <laughs> is it a is it a natural bump or is it a man-made bump? And how did this man made bump him up? And what is that like? I gave it a picture of the way. Like a layered cake, right? You cut down into it. And uh, we talked about the history of Jericho and what happened to it when the children of, of Israel came into the, were coming into the promised land. What did they do to that city? When the children of Israel were coming into the promised land, when they came upon the city of Jericho, what did they do to that city? What did they do? Tumbled down? Okay. So how, how, did, how did it tumble down? Oh, okay. And so walking around the city makes it tumble down, huh? Yeah. The Lord made it tumble down. That's right. Now what did they do to it once they got into the city? What was that? They burned it to the ground. 
And what did we see in in the ruins as we cut through the layered cake? What did we see that that proved that happened? There's layers, but what was that one layer? That what was it like? It was like a burnt layer. It's like having vanilla cake, vanilla cake, vanilla cake, vanilla cake, chocolate cake, vanilla cake, vanilla cake. This burnt layer right there that uh, was proving what the Bible says about Jericho. And was there anything significant that they found um, in that city that leads us to believe that it was during a certain time of the year? Yeah. Full of wheat. Yeah, so we know it was burnt during harvest. That was exactly what the Bible says about it. Yeah, some kind of container shed. I'm not exactly sure what they're made of. Probably clay. Yeah, but they're, they're containers that were full of, of, of uh, the harvest. They're showing it was burnt down during harvest time. Uh, it wasn't just a city that was just abandoned. If you were to abandon a city, you'd take all the food you just harvested with you. You wouldn't just leave it behind. So it was burnt down. And so that helped us to understand and to harmonize these passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the passages that talk about just going into the city and, you know, when they're leaving it and they're going into it. You know, when, it, when, are the, when is Jesus encountering these two blind men? And so hopefully you'll remember those things and uh, it'll help you to harmonize those things. Okay, today we're going to read in Matthew 21, uh, all the way through verse 17. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, <clears throat> Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he came into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to, them, said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So thus far, uh, through Matthew chapter 20, we've been looking at Jesus' life, the first you know, three years of his life, his ministry. His, not his life, but his first three years of his ministry. And now starting in Matthew 21, all the way through the end of Matthew, we're going to look at the last week of his ministry. Okay? all going to be about his last week. And, of course, a little bit after he rose from the grave and spoke to the disciples. 
uh, but we're starting to last week. So there's a lot of information on his last week. And he's drawing near to Jerusalem and came to Beth uh, Fage. And Beth Fage, it sounds kind of funny to sign it like that, say it like that, but that's actually the way it's pronounced. It means house of green figs. The word Beth is house, uh, Fage is green figs, or even unripened figs. Okay? But that's what it means. At the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent his two disciples. And he told them to go and to uh, find a donkey and a colt and to bring them to him. Now, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the mother. Okay? Uh, but for good reason, because it fulfills prophecy. Okay, as you see in verse 5 and 6, it's quoting from Zechariah 9 9. Uh, it's, it's fulfilling prophecy to the T. We're talking about the male and the female. Now, the fact that the other Gospels don't mention the, the mother does not mean that she wasn't there. You see an issue of telescoping here once again. Matthew's giving more details than some of the other Gospels are giving. But the mother is there, and the cult is there as well. And if we were to go to uh, Mark 11, just for a second, to look at his uh, account of this, we'll see in verse 2 that he gives a little more detail. It's a colt which no one has sat on. No one has ever sat on. And, you know, the Bible doesn't say this is why the mother was brought to Jesus with the colt, but that could be one of the reasons why. I mean, this colt could have already been weaned from its mother, maybe, maybe not. But it's never been rode upon yet. So it's probably, you know, maybe a little timid. Maybe it needs a little comfort from its mother. You know, its mother will ride along with it and it will follow its mother. Because up until now, it's been following its mother wherever it goes. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why um, the mother is brought, practically speaking. Well, we don't know that for sure, so I'm just reasoning it through. And we see, you know, Matthew doesn't uh, tell that... Uh, they ran into any people who were the owners of the donkey and the colt. But Mark says they did. It says in verse 5 of Mark 11, But some of those who stood there said to, them, said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And he spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Now here's the question I have for you here. You really only have two options here when it comes to these people who were, uh, who Jesus said in verse three of Matthew 21, if anyone says to you anything, you shall say, the Lord has needed them, and immediately he will send them. Now them letting uh, the disciples, whoever, whichever ones you just sent, doesn't say who he sent, have the colt and the donkey, that's a free will decision, is it not? To allow your colt and donkey go. So it's either Jesus has exhausted foreknowledge here, he knows what these people are going to say, he knows what they're going to do, or we have the Calvinist God in practice here, and he's forcing them to do it. But open theism will not fit with this situation. Okay? Because Jesus is telling them what these people are going to do before they do it. Okay? So unless we're willing to take away these people's free will in this situation, uh, we have to say that Jesus has foreknowledge of future events. Yes, brother? So you're, what you're saying is they, they took away his free will. I'm not saying Well, I'm saying that's what they would say. I'm saying you're, you're, you're speaking for them now just for a second here. It's not that you're right. taking their position. Right. But they, so they would have to say that their free will was taken away. That's what they have to say. 
Right, they wouldn't use that language. That's what it breaks down to. Okay, this open theistic explanation of the situation doesn't, doesn't it's kind of, uh, to some degree, you're doing the same thing with the Calvinists do by redefining words. Now, they have a choice, but they don't have a choice. Well, which one is it? You can't have both ways. I and mean, the, whole, the whole reason for the system of open theism is to support free will and to make sure we have genuine free will because if God has foreknowledge, we don't have genuine free will now. Right, they would take, you have to take free will away here if they're going to say that. Otherwise, because the, the way they say if something in the future is going to be brought to pass, it's definite, it's certain, God takes away free will and God brings it to pass. Now, if God's bringing this to pass, that means these men who are giving, these people who are giving their coat and donkey away have no free will in the situation. Okay, so that's what someone's going to have to say, which now you're back with Calvinism, which is one of the reasons why open theists become open theists, because they don't want to be Calvinist. You know, so you have a problem there. And so, um, and if you look at the uh, uh, the Luke account of this, it gives even more details. And it says in uh, Luke 19, verse 33, who these people were, as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? The Lord has needed them, and they brought him to Jesus. So the owners of the colt and the donkey allowed the disciples, whichever disciples it were who came and got, at least two of them, because plural, came and got them, they let them have them. But there's obviously some foreknowledge involved here that is certain because Jesus didn't say, well, maybe they'll let him go. They said immediately he will send them. That's exactly what they did. There's definite there. There's certainty there of what Jesus is saying. There's no if ands, or buts about it. They might let him go. They're going to let him go. That's all there is to it. And not only that, he had to foreknowledge that uh, there would actually be a colt and a donkey in the city. A cult that had never been written upon. I mean, isn't there a chance that in all of Jerusalem there wouldn't be a cult and a donkey tied together that the cult had never been written upon? You have to have knowledge of that as well. And so, there's lots of things going on there that have to be accounted for. And this was done to fulfill prophecy. And so this prophecy, which was spoken years ago, was in regards to foreknowledge too. So God had foreknowledge back in Isaiah's day, hundreds of years before this ever happened, now, this is exactly what would happen. That these people would be in the city in Jerusalem. I mean, it's people back in Isaiah's day, they weren't even born yet. The colt and the donkey weren't born yet. How did he know? How did God know all the way back then that Jesus would find a, find a willing participant who would have a colt and a donkey who would allow them to take it and allow Jesus to ride upon it? There's no way he can know unless he has foreknowledge or unless he takes away free will and makes it come to pass. Okay, so we, we see that happening there. This is this is prophecy being fulfilled. And you see in, in verse 5 of Matthew 21, the first part first part says, Tell the daughter of Zion. That's from Isaiah 62, 11. And then the second part of verse 5 is from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Now, we've talked about this many times in this fellowship about, you know, when Jesus, when the Bible is quoted from the Old Testament, which text is the following? Usually it follows the Septuagint. Here, it's following the Hebrew. Okay. You get the Septuagint available with you, your That's that, okay. Maybe we can look at it later. But in the Septuagint, it, it, it'll say a colt, the foal of a donkey, but in the uh, Hebrew, it says the son of a donkey. And here, in verse 5, that word is translated foal, is actually the Greek word weos, which is son. That's what it means. And so the Hebrew has the word son, if you go back to Zechariah 9, but the Septuagint does not. So here it's following more closely 
the Hebrew. Okay, so this is one example of that. Uh, but we'll see later on in verse 16, that follows exactly the Septuagint in verse 16 when it's quoted from the Old Testament. So he's lowly and sitting on a donkey. That's, that's interesting because he's riding into the Jerusalem. He's being called things that are that are only used, terms only used for the Messiah. He's coming in as the king, and he's riding on a donkey. What do kings usually ride upon? Horses. Huge white horses? Well, that's what's going to come back on the second time. He's humbling himself, and, and you know, a donkey in, in Hebrew culture is a sign of peace. So he's, he's probably trying to bring peace to them. But the second time he's coming, he's not going to bring peace. He's going to bring destruction. He's going to destroy his enemies, the Bible says. That'll happen in the end. But now he's coming to make peace with Jerusalem, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's offering peace to them. But um, back going back to verse six here, we see that he's, of course, in verse five, lowly. He's a king. He's coming lowly to them, humble to them. Uh, a donkey is a sign of peace. He's not on a horse yet. He's sitting on the son of a donkey. So we know it's a male uh, donkey, the, the the baby donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they found it just as he said, as we already read in Mark 11 and Luke 20. It says, They brought the donkey and, and colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. Now, if you go to the Septuagint version of this, uh, Zechariah 9 9, it would say that he actually rode on the donkey and on the colt. They rode on both of them. But you see here in verse 7, it says, He set him on them. Now, what is the them referring to? It's referring to the clothes. In the Greek, it's referring to the clothes. He set him, Jesus, on them, the clothes they just put on the colt, not on the donkey and the colt. Uh, but I guess there's still a possibility he rode on both, even though Mark and Luke don't mention him riding the donkey at all. He could have rode the donkey part of the time and then rode the colt part of the time. Okay, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the, from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, this is the road from Bethany going to Jerusalem, which is about, I'd say about a half a mile, I think. Maybe a mile going from Bethany to Jerusalem. And along the way, I mean, this is a Passover. He's meeting people who are traveling to Jerusalem. As he's traveling to Jerusalem, these people are, are from the areas he was preaching in. He was doing miracles in. Uh, he did want signs and wonders in. And so they're aware of him. They know about him. And so they're laying branches on the road, and they're laying their clothes on the road. And, and if, uh, the only other account you see of this happening in the Bible, laying clothes before a king, is in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. And as I read, uh, reviewed that passage, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago and then this week too, it's a story of Jehu, who was anointed king. And I believe it was Elisha. I can't remember if it was Elisha or Elijah. I think it was Elisha. He sent one of the sons of the prophets, sons of the prophets, to anoint Jehu king, because Jezebel and her husband, I think it was Ahab, were wicked. And uh, he said, "His house is coming to an end." God spoke to the prophet, "His house is coming to the end." And so he anointed. He sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint Jehu as king, and Jehu went about destroying that household, utterly killing and wiping all of them out. It's amazing because 
that's what Jesus is going to do the second time. And so Jehu is almost a picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do the second time. And But when Jehu was anointed king, his fellow commanders and soldiers who were there in the room with him after he was anointed king laid their clothes down before him and blew the trumpet and said he was king of Israel. And then they fought with him. Okay, so it's a sign. It's almost like kind of like our American culture laying out the red carpet, so to speak. Of course, in American culture, we do it for the people who are worshipped in our culture, don't we? Uh, the, the movie stars, the music stars, the athletes, they get the red carpet. They get to go meet the president you know, after they won the Super Bowl. Because that's important. When you know Throwing a pigskin back and forth and crossing a white line more times than the other team, that's important enough for you to meet the president. You know, if you won a Grammy Award, where the, the, the wicked culture around us tells you you're the, you're the best singer in this category for this year, you deserve the red carpet, and we're going to take lots of pictures of you and let you roll up in limousines. But no, the king of kings is the only one who deserves such treatment like that. And so Jesus was getting this treatment. But you know what the ironic thing is? Is that these very people who were, were saying these things and laying down branches and laying their, their clothes, and, and the word clothes there means outer garments, outer clothes, not, not, they're not getting naked here, okay? Same thing with the clothes in verse 7. It's outer garments, cloaks, robes. They're laying them on the ground. But, the, but these very same people, less than a week later, like three or four days later, are going to yell out, crucify him, crucify him. As I read through these accounts of these people saying, crucify him, crucify him, uh, two of the accounts give us some insight as to why. They had mob mentality. See, in this situation, they were as a, together as a crowd saying, Hosanna to the son of, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Calling him the Messiah. And the word Hosanna means, uh, help, save now, I pray. A shout of praise. And they were directing it towards him. Save now, I pray. And so the same group, group who was for Jesus, less than a week later, they're against him and calling for his death. My question for you is that, especially for the young ones, you know, the crowd you hang around is Christians. What happens is lawlessness abounds more and more. And the crowd becomes smaller. And the crowd that's wicked becomes bigger. Are you going to join that crowd? Is the mob mentality going to get you? Are you a cultural Christian because you're in the culture of Christianity here in our little community and we're all together, we see each other a lot, we pray for each other? If the world becomes more and more wicked, are you going to go along with the world? Are you going to have the mob mentality? Because these people did. And these words will be spoken against them on Judgment Day if they, don't, if they didn't repent. So they had a mob mentality. They followed the crowd. And they were led astray by the, the wicked religious leaders. And it says, in the, let's just go to it real quick. Let's go to Matthew and see what he said about it. Just look at the exact language here. It's in uh, Matthew 27. In verse 20, Pilate's offering them to release one prisoner, whether 
Barabbas, their murderer, the robber, uh, the one who led their rebellion, where they want him to release him or Jesus. And then in verse 20 of Matthew 27 it says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. It's not only were they led astray by the mob mentality, they went along with the rest of the crowd, the many instead of the few. They, they were led astray by false teachers. They were very easily convinced. Where just a few days before, they were calling Jesus the Messiah, calling him the Son of David, saying, Hosanna to him, save now I pray to him. And now they're saying, no, crucify him, crucify him. Give us a murderer, give us a thief, give us a rebel over Jesus. So they're led astray by the mob mentality and by false teachers. Yeah. They chose a child of the devil over choosing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who they claimed to be Messiah a few days beforehand. And, and there's going to come a point in time where this world's going to get worse and wax worse and worse. We haven't seen it, but yet it's going to wax worse and worse. And laws is going to abound more and more. And Lord keeps putting us on my heart, abound more and more. And the love of most will grow cold. Will you be a part of those most? Or will you be a part of the few who remain white hot, who are running with Jesus? And the time to start doing that, to prepare for that, is right now. Because they hit you with a, like a surprise, and you just like them, you go along with it. Because you're going to fear for your life and say, well, I'm going to go along with everybody else. Otherwise, I'm going to end up like him. The man who was about to crucify. I don't want to end up like him. Mob mentality and fault easily led astray. you got to know your faith yourself. Don't be led astray by the mob or by false teachers like this crowd was. And so they were before they went before Jesus in verse 9, so they went before him and they were behind, they're all around him, surrounding him, saying Hosanna. And that's a, a transliterated word there, Hosanna. That's what it actually says in the Greek, Hosanna. It just simply means, like I said, save now, I pray, help. It became known as a as a uh, shout of praise. Kind of like we say hallelujah. You might say Hosanna. It's just a shout of praise. We you might not even until now have known what that word of Hosanna means, but it becomes a shout of praise to God. And verse 10 says, When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Now, that's kind of a funny thing to ask. He's been around for a while now, hasn't he? But he hasn't done it most, most of his ministry in Jerusalem. He's done very little of his ministry in Jerusalem. Most of it's been in Galilee and the outlying areas. He's rarely ever gone to Jerusalem at all. And so they don't know who he is. And so the multitude say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Notice they called him the prophet, not a prophet. The problem with this is they called him from Nazareth, and they all knew that the prophet comes from where? Comes from Bethlehem. And so they're going to have to, you know, the people who are hearing this from Nazareth, they're going to have to look into it further before they actually decide he's the Messiah or not, because the prophet doesn't come from Nazareth, he comes from Bethlehem. That's even a, that's even one of the, the problems the the Pharisees had. I think it was when the um, the man who was healed after he lame for thirty eight years. Well, no, no, no prophet comes from Nazareth. It comes from Bethlehem. We all know that. But the funny thing is, they were confirming that Jesus was the prophet by saying that through their ignorance. Okay, right here in verse eleven, there's going to be, I believe, uh, some other things we can insert here from Mark and from Luke that I think are important as we go through his chronology. 
But before we get into that, verse 12 through verse 17 is going to talk about the cleansing of the temple. And this is not the first time this has happened. This is at least, this is the second time this has happened. Okay? So let's just go to the first time in John chapter 2. Which is at the beginning of Jesus' life. The beginning of, well, the beginning of his ministry is what I mean. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. This is right after the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. The, the passage of the sinners that we try to use is just by the drunkenness. And then in verse 13 of John 2, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. They had made a whip of cords. He drove all, them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away, not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house is eating me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, show to us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Are you speaking of the temple of his body? Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And so there's many reasons why this can't be the same account we're talking about here. One, it's the beginning of his ministry. Two, uh, and this this encounter here we see in Matthew and Luke and in Mark, <clears throat> he doesn't have any words with just regular Jews, as he does in John. He has words with the leaders of the Jews in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so these two encounters are about three years apart. But Jesus, you know, he went in the temple and cleansed it, and three years later came back and did the same thing. And they're still doing the same thing. Still doing the same thing. Which brings me to this point that me and my friend were talking about last night, about this repentance issue. If someone repented of something and then did it again a year later, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, question their their genuineness of their first repentance. But I would question their preparation for not allowing it to happen again. You know, if God speaks something to us that we're not to do a certain thing or we're going to do a certain thing, we need to look back on how we disobeyed the Lord in the past and see the progression it took and make provision to not let it happen again. And, uh, you know, that, that's very important our repentance and living holy. If God speaks something to us or someone speaks something to us, uh, if God speaks through someone to us, we need to listen to it and take heed with that and obey it. And so but what we see in verse 11, he's coming into Jerusalem, and I think Mark 11, 11 can be inserted here. This is the end of uh, triumphal en uh, en entry in Mark. It says in Mark 11, 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I think verse 11 is simply describing what he did when he first came in, and then when he left. I don't think he left, after he rode on a donkey, left, and then came back the next day and drove them out of the temple. I think he did it the very same day. And the question now arises is this, as I'm trying to harmonize, maybe you've looked at this, maybe you haven't, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is there a third time that Jesus drove 
the things out of the temple and cleanse the temple. Because in Mark, you see him doing this uh, in Mark chapter 11. You see him cleansing the temple in verse 15 through 19 after the fig tree was withered. And in verse 12 of Mark 11, you see that the fig tree withered on the next day. Okay? So the next day, the fig tree withered, and then he came to Jerusalem and drove the people out of the temple and cleansed the temple once again. Yes, I am proposing that. Now, I have to let you know this, that I haven't found a commentator that agrees with me yet. But I have found their their explanations to be insufficient of the evidence of what I see in the scriptures here. Um, the only other option I think we have, because you see in Matthew, uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, there's a cleansing of the temple, and then it says in verse 18, uh, after he left in verse 17 of Matthew 21, he left and went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there, and it says in verse 18, now in the morning, it talks about the fig tree with him. Okay, so we have, in Matthew's account, we have the cleansing of the temple, then we have the fig tree. In Mark's account, we have the fig tree, and then we have the cleansing of the temple. So unless we're going to say that, uh, you know, Matthew just went back in time to talk about the fig tree, which happened actually before the temple, then I think we have a third time happening here. Uh, yeah, that, that could possibly be, but those things are so, I mean, it's so closely saying the same thing, I, I couldn't imagine it was two fig trees. So that's possible too, though. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but if, you, if, if we can just go on, I'm, I'm going to show you why I think this, okay? So, it says in verse 11 of Matthew 21 that he came, they're claiming him to be prophet of Nazareth. And then in verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables. So he did a cleansing. And then in verse 17, Then, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Okay? Now I think verse 17 of Matthew 21 goes along very well with Mark 11:11, 11, 11, where it says he went out to Bethany with the twelve at the end of verse 11. And so there could be, right in verse 11, there could be a cleansing right there. So, so he went to, into Jerusalem, into the temple, he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So in between there, somewhere in verse 11 would be, I'm proposing, would be the first cleansing we see in Matthew, the first cleansing of the last part of his life, the second cleansing overall that we see in Matthew 21, 12 through 17. And uh, Luke doesn't... Um, mention the, the fig tree at all. Let's just go to him for a second and see what he says. If he if there's any language in Luke that shows that he went straight into the temple to cleanse it after he came in. <coughs> it's in Luke nineteen. <coughs> it says in verse forty, this is the end of the triumphal entry here. Um but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And then he says in verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, this your day, the peace, the things that would make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you do not know the time of visitation. 
Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, it made a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, for the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. <coughs> and so it seems to me, even in Luke, that he went straight into the, the temple, uh, right after the triumphal entry. So I, I, I'm still going to, I'm holding to this, and I, have, I haven't been able to find anything that I think contradicts my, my view on this, that I've come to. And, um, and so we see in Mark 11, going back to that once again, in verse, uh, he cleans the temple in verse 15, and then down in 18 it says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. So he's coming back and forth to the city, as it says in Luke, teaching people, um, daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. So that's my proposal to you when it comes to this situation here. Uh, if you find a better way to reconcile that, I'm willing to hear it. Um, but from my study of this, I've been able to study it, I think, for about three weeks now. Uh, this is the conclusion I've come to. But besides all that, uh, it's interesting that before he went into the temple in Luke's account, what did he do uh, concerning Jerusalem? He wept over it. He wept over it. And uh, I think that's a, that's a good precursor to, the, to a strong rebuke. As weeping over the people you're going to strongly rebuke. Um, now, I'm not going to say that if someone's going to strongly rebuke them, they must weep over them first. Well, the Bible commands the thing. But we do see Jesus' example here in this one time when he goes in there that he does weep over them first, showing his heart for them. Now, I want to point out this, that they didn't see him weep over them. Okay, uh, I've been hearing a lot of times recently of people who open-air preachers who want to say, well, people need to see and feel your compassion for them. Well, that would be nice and that might be ideal, but nowhere do the scriptures say that people must feel your compassion for them or feel your love for them. It commands us to be compassionate and to be loving. It's also commands us to convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and teaching. It commands us to reprove the, the, those who uh, are work living in darkness. They have no fellowship with them. Uh, but nowhere in Scripture does it say that people must feel your love for them. Or that if someone doesn't feel loved or feel compassion for you, that you're doing something wrong and you're not being loving, not being compassionate. And so, well-meaning Christians oftentimes will say these things. And I think part of the problem is that they don't like the way the lost is acting towards a rebuke. The lost are angry. The lost are upset. Uh, maybe they're even raging at it. Because they, they want, you know, it seems like they're almost like chalking up love to feelings. Like, if these people will feel my love for me, from me, that I have for them, then that means I'm genuinely loving them. No, I mean, if we were to go to the Matthew 23, which we'll get to in a few weeks, I mean, Jesus pronounced woes upon these, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, they call them hypocrites, blind guides, fools and blind, whitewashed tombs, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is full of... Uh, extortion and self-indulgence. I'm willing to bet they didn't feel loved 
by Jesus. And I, I would say that children, when they're getting spanked, in the moment of getting spanked, they probably don't feel love from mommy or daddy, or from uncle or aunt. But it is an act of love. And so, although I think uh, that's good, it's good to weep over the lost, um, weeping doesn't necessarily mean love, and a lack of weeping does not necessarily mean a lack of love, or a lack of compassion. So we can't take one example of Jesus we see in Luke before he goes into clean the temple, we can't take that and make that the rule. But the Bible doesn't make it the rule. In fact, the first time in John 2 that Jesus went and hit a whip of cords that time, you see no mention of this song this time, but hit with the cords, you don't see any mention of him weeping over him that time. I'm not saying he didn't. It's possible he did. But we're not obligated to do that, is what I'm saying. And so people oftentimes, because they, they're living by feelings or because they're concerned about how the lost is going to view them, the lost is not the gauge of whether a Christian is doing something right or not. They are not the standard. They are not the gauge. The Bible is the standard and the gauge. Uh, I will say this, though, that if someone is, we talked about this before, if someone's constantly rebuking, they need to check their own heart. You know, if they're constantly being harsh, they check their own heart. That, that's not what you see Jesus doing. It's not what you see the disciples, the apostles. They're not constantly doing that. They, all, they, are, they are that way at times. And so whether, whether we have uh, two or three, uh, we see Jesus pulling the temple. And this is, you know, most people's view of Jesus can't, can't encompass this. They can't deal with this. You know, sinners we talk to in the open air, they can't deal with Jesus doing this. Then he goes in there, and he literally throws people money away. <laughs> Takes their possession and lets them go. Because they're being thieves. Now, the scripture nowhere says exactly what they're doing in the, in the in temple, of course, but he's calling them a den of thieves for a reason. See, people would come into the temple, they would have money from wherever they're from, and they would say, well, your money is not good enough, you need to have the money we have to do a money exchange. Okay? And they were, they were stealing from them by making the exchange rate worse than it actually was. And so they're stealing from them. So they're using an opportunity, it's supposed to be a godly thing, coming to the temple for the Passover, the Day of Atonement coming up, all these things supposed to be a holy, godly thing, and they're making it into a way to steal. This is just like the this is like some of the false the first prosperity gospel preachers here. They make it into a, a, a chance, an opportunity to steal from people. And the same thing with the uh, with the animals or son, because people they weren't going to bring all their animals from wherever they were from to the city to offer them up as a sacrifice as their offering. They were going to take their, they're going to sell their animals where they were. We talked about this before. We talked about tithes and offerings. Sell the animals where they were, bring their money with them, buy the animals there, and then make their offering. That's a long way to travel with all those animals. And so, you know, you go to Super Bowl in Indianapolis to preach. Guess what? You do hotel prices, ching, gas prices, ching. That's what they always do. These these merchants are looking for a way to make an extra buck off of you, and they know there's going to be a great demand. There goes the money. And so these people know there's going to be a great demand for, for all these animals. So let's jack up the prices, make some extra profit off of God, and off of his holiday. And so they were called a den of thieves. 
even though God's temple is supposed to be holy, it's, it's God's house. Imagine the thieves being in God's house. And the blind and lame came to the temple, and he healed them. And the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children, and the word for children there, simply means a child normally at or below the age of puberty. Okay? So now we've heard the people crying out along the way. All the people crying out who are coming to Jerusalem along the way on the on the donkey. And now he's in the temple. He's cleansed the temple. And now children are in there crying out. Now it doesn't say here, but I'm, I'm willing to bet there's some bar mitzvahs going on here. Okay? Some bar mitzvahs. That's the boys. Bar means son. Mitzvah means commandments. Okay? Son of commandments. One to whom the commandments apply. 13 years old for a boy. Now you're to the age of accountability. Now you're supposed to be an adult. Now, according to Jewish culture, you can legally get married. Uh, now you're responsible for your actions. One, two, who the commandments apply. So, and they're crying out, as they're probably about to become adults in the eyes of the Jewish community, Hosanna. They're calling him the, the son of David, the Messiah. And of course, the, uh, the chief priests and scribes were very angry about this. Here are future pupils of the future of Israel, and they're turning aside, not to our teachings, but to this guy. And calling him the Messiah. And it even got to the point where um, young children were, were saying it too. You see, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. This is quoting from Psalm 8-2, the Septuagint version of it, at the end of verse 16. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And it reminds me of Alyssa, who, you know, not so long ago, she was saying what it sounded like to me, Hallelujah. Uh, now, she didn't, I don't think she knows what she's saying. I'm not saying that, but the fact is, uh, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you're perfected praise. Now, perfected praise. So when you hear them praise, that's like the perfect kind of praise. They're unashamed. They don't care what anyone says or thinks around them. They're just shouting it out. And so all these young ones are turning aside to Jesus, and they're getting very angry about it. The ironic thing is that children saw it. He's the Messiah. These, these bar mitzvah ones saw it. But these religious leaders who studied the text backwards and forward knew it like the back of their hand and they were teaching it to the people. They missed it. Well, they denied it. Yeah. I'd, I'd say that. But that's my point. That's my point. That they, you know, we, we oftentimes, we, we think that great teachers and great leaders, they, you know, they can be fully trusted. Why not? You need to be a Berean. You need to be a Berean. Um, if it's like it was the first time, like it's going to be the second time, which I think it will be, because it's coming like a thief tonight. There's so many people. Coming like a thief tonight. He's only come like a thief night to those who are not watching and waiting and praying and looking for the signs. I got no reason to look for the signs. I'll be out of here before they happen. What's that? Um, I think it's in Matthew 24. Well, that's good. That's good. The one I'm referring to, I thought it was saying the same thing. 
Watching and praying, looking for the signs of his coming. Why he gives the signs in the first place. Hey, if you think you're going to be out of here before those signs happen, you got no reason to look for them, right? You really think he's never going to come back the way he's actually going to come back. You got no reason to look for it either. There's many teachers who are teaching this. Now they lead people astray through the denying of Jesus. They lead people astray by by people trusting them too much. But these children got it. They saw it. And the religious leaders who were supposed to be the ones who knew everything did not get it. Did not get it. You know, you know the thing I've noticed as I was studying this and praying about this for today? Um, we see, you know, as we go back a little bit, we see disciples arguing about who's the greatest. You know, can I sit at your right hand or your left hand? And, you know, they want to sit in his right hand. They want to be closest to him. They want to be the, the throne that's closest to Jesus' throne, the right or the left. Uh, they want to be the greatest. But then, you know, as, as long as the as long as the the mob is on their side, they're all forced being you know next to his right and the left. But then, but then, but then, when the Garden of Gethsemane comes, we're not going to forget that according to the song we sung today. But when the Garden of Gethsemane comes, and there's no mob on their side anymore. The mobs are the mobs going to say crucify him, crucify him. Now they all run away. They all run away because the mobs against them now. And so while you have while you have while you're in this little cocoon here, especially you young ones, while you're in this little cocoon, you have everyone on your side here. They're all for Jesus and they're all for you. You, you have this little protection here. You're you're doing good, but what's gonna what's gonna happen? I want you to think about this. What's going to happen when you're out of this cocoon and the whole world is against you? Are you going to stand up for righteousness? Or are you going to fall into the mob mentality? What's going to happen? When that garden of Gethsemane comes and hardship comes and hard times come, it's easy now. When hard times come, what's going to happen? And this is not just this is for the older people too. But, but I want the young people, because we, we've all seen it, I think. Most of us have seen it. And it is going to get worse for us, too. It will, no doubt. But we, I think we've tasted and seen a little more than they have. But it's going to get worse. And, and is the mob mentality going to get you? Is the, the threat of your life going to get you? Is, is false teachers going to turn you aside? And not because their teaching is better, but because it's a little easier. And so we need to beware. Watch and pray. And think about these things. Same place. Beth, no, not not the same place. Bethphage is a little further away from Jerusalem. Okay. Oh, through my study of it, 
the only time you see it mentioned in all the Bible is right is in these these accounts. So you probably won't even see it on the map. That I'm aware of. But if you see where Bethany is on your map, uh, you would go maybe a quarter mile north uh, east of that. That's where Bethany would be. And so where it's basically on the Mount of Olives, Bethany is on like the hillside of the Mount of Olives, you'd say. About the same place, though. Sinners of Gentiles. Gentiles are born sinners, but Jews aren't. Right. Amen. Peer pressure. Yep. Yes. 
Yeah, it's like we're we're kind of swimming upstream with the salmon do. We come back to the breeding grounds, and think about it, if they were to relax for a second swimming upstream. What's going to happen? Carry it up, get right back out. We keep jumping and fighting, and we are against the stream. We are against the stream. But some of the younger ones might not feel that yet, but we are.
So, so are, are you a house of prayer? Can I be said of you? Are you a house of prayer? Would you say Christ lives in you? Holy Spirit lives in you? 